Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business. David Dozer, Dr. David Dozer, he is a longtime regular on the Price of Business. Emeritus from uh, San Diego State University in journalism. Uh, brings incredible experience and background. Uh, he uh, very, very progressive, a, a self-described maniac. Um, and of course, in your newest my show, Bam, uh, right of center with a, I would say, a pretty strong libertarian streak. Uh, but we both have a huge amount of agreement when it comes to all things for Amendment free speech. And uh, I think we w would both go to war uh, to defend each other's opinions in those areas. And so, and, and I, we find it fascinating because uh, there's a whole lot of uh, broad brushes painted when it comes to this debate. Uh, but the reality is, is that our freedom and everyone's freedom is really connected to this topic. You know, they talk about you can't, <laughs> can't be free without your gun rights. Well, yeah, you can't really be free without your ability to speak freely. And so that's a big path. Now, we've gone all over the place. In fact, I'm seeing here, thanks to the great work of David, that uh, we're already on uh, interview number 28. I'm not sure why you're keeping count, but you're doing a damn good job at that. Uh, we've covered a lot in that time frame. Today, we're going to go into the whole issue of and its potential impact, and already impact, rather, on journalism. But before we do that, a little more about what your current work is, including your phenomenal book and how people can learn more about it. And welcome, David. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. The uh, title of my book is The California Killing Field, and it deals with the ways in which uh, technology can be used to shape uh, public opinion uh, it was published in 2020, so it's already ancient in terms of the ways in which we use technology. Uh, generative artificial intelligence would be just a more sophisticated way of doing some of the manipulation of public opinion that I talk about in the book. And if you want to find out more about me, uh, you can go to daviddozerbooks.com. Last name is spelled D-O-Z-I-E-R. Check it out. The very, very French-sounding David <laughs> David Dozer. <laughs> I just pulled up. I just the chapter out of Rush Limbaugh as he uh, talked about uh, uh, John Kerry. Remember John French Kerry, the very French-looking John. K anyway, uh, <laughs> a little ancient history. That's even more ancient than, than your book. And your book's not at all, although it sure feels like it, right? All the difference three years makes. Uh, but I think the messaging is really important and really kind of a harbinger of things to come. It's great fiction that relates to reality. And so I encourage people to check it out. Okay, so uh, AI is everywhere. Um, and ChatGPT is probably the most talked about uh, item in um, the world of, world of business and business news. It seems like um, it, it's just fascinating to see its impact. Full disclosure, I use, uh, I use ChatGPT all the time. I primarily use it for uh, research to help me get some creative ideas going because it can do for me what used to require a news team uh, to do, a whole team to do. Some of the topics are, are so hard uh, to get all the information together, um, we wouldn't even bother. We would keep our objectives more modest. ChatGPT has unleashed that 
And plus, it's a phenomenal tool to just take an article, copy, paste it, stick it in there, and say, hey, do, do a grammar, grammar check and spell check on this. And it's amazing how much better it does without major change article itself. So there's a lot of great utility there. Um, you know, and, and from someone who is using it and generally a fan of it, I'm also concerned about it and how far it can go. And, of course, you know, you asked a question, is it good for journalism? Who knows about that? Suspect uh, is probably bad for journalists. Still. That's, that's my initial take. Well, that's a, that's a nice summary of your experiences with it. And uh, 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 for the listeners to, uh, to know some of the backstory, uh, you and I did uh, uh, use one of the uh, uh, generative artificial intelligence sites to ask the very question we're trying to answer today, which is, you know, what's good and what's bad about generative uh, artificial intelligence for journalism? And what we got back was a, uh, a document. Uh, my colleague, uh, Diane Borden, said it looked like it was written by a high school student. I said, no, thinking more like an undergraduate in college. But uh, I think the key thing was is that it uh, had zero uh, creative content in it. And I think one of the uh, phrases that I think is useful when we start talking about the ability of AI generative uh, AI to be able to create, quote, new, close quote, content is that it's not really new. Uh, it's basically what I call mimicking. It mimics the work of other people, basically human beings and often uh, copyrighted material uh, without, uh, without permission and without compensation. Yeah. Yes, yes. And that is the pernicious aspect of it. That's the data of it. Uh, people are able to literally uh, take articles. Uh, I already know this is being done by some news media. I know this because of people I know in the field. And, I, and just, you know, an example of all of this, uh, this is the second time in 2023 that the Washington Post, which is a great publication, we do a series with the Washington Post that I love. Um, and although it's left of center, it gives me a dimension I need. But this and this year that they've laid off hundreds, hundreds of journalists specifically. And I think a lot of this is being fueled by uh, uh, Chat GPT, in my opinion. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's certainly, uh, but, but we're talking about taking articles written by other copy paste, put it in chat GPT and say, rewrite this, make it unique and free of copyright issues. And then, <laughs> Two minutes, not that. Less than a minute later, Eureka. Well, the the challenge, of course, is is that if uh, what uh, generative artificial intelligence is doing is in essence mimicking the work of humans, at some point there won't be any humans doing the work for them for the the, the algorithms to uh, mimic, and so we get ourselves into an infinite regress and. Uh, now, I'm going to sound like a hard-nosed capitalist here, which is really your job, but uh, when you take somebody else's uh, intellectual property and you basically uh, commercialize it, you basically resell that uh, uh, intellectual property to profit your business and you have neither permission uh, nor have you paid licensing fees to do that, 
you take away the money that's necessary to do good journalism, to, to pay for investigative reporting and, and have regular beat reporters that can follow uh, an institutional over time so that they kind of know the ins and outs of what's going on. And I see that as, the, the, if you will, the management challenge to media organization uh, is the ability to control your own intellectual property and get compensated when uh, uh, artificial intelligence is being used to mimic your own stuff. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. At some point, the incentive for innovation and creation and creativity is uh, uh, completely sabotaged. Exactly. And then on the uh, the labor side of the question, there's uh, uh, the question of what happens if the media uh, organizations are able to figure out ways to license their intellectual property that's being basically sucked up by uh, uh, generative AI, if they can get some compensation for that and it allows them to be more robust economically, where's that money going to go? And unfortunately, if we look at what's going on in the uh, news industry today, and you already tapped on it, uh, Kevin, is the idea that very often uh, AI is going to be used to reduce staff. And so it really doesn't uh, enhance the quality of journalism. It simply means that Reporters, a smaller, you know, skeleton crew of uh, reporters are going to be asked to do more with less. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And that pressure's already been on there. Last last time you were on the show, we focused a lot on, um, you know, the death of local journalism. That's been driven by hardcore raw capitalism, really um, venture capitalism has wasted a war on that. Yeah, and I, I here's the here's the ultimate challenge is that uh, we said it in our summary that basically it, uh, uh, quality journalism is a lot of hard work by very skillful people and it costs a lot of money, and so uh, if the news organizations are unable to get compensated for their own intellectual property, the whole uh, the whole building falls down because you're taking out the fundamental foundation of what supports, uh, you know, private private media in the United States. Uh, and uh, with that, of course, goes down quality journalism. But if you get the money, uh, you still have the challenge of where is that going to be invested? And uh, the news business is very labor intensive. Labor sucks up a giant portion of the budget. And uh, if you have the opportunity when you're looking at um, the bottom line uh, and you see you've got these huge labor costs and you've got this new tool that allows uh, a journalist to be 25% more productive in terms of just generating output, uh, then, well, maybe we can cut our staff back by 25%. Um, but that doesn't give you uh, people actually doing the work. It just means that, uh, that, that more of the time uh, that a journalist spends is going to be working with uh, hopefully taking a look at stuff that AI is generating and making sure that it's accurate, which is the other side of the coin, if you will. It's, uh, it's at this point in its development, uh, generative artificial intelligence is notoriously inaccurate. 
Yeah, no question about it. Notorious is a good word for it. Um, and yet, you know, and, and I'm already amazed. I'll be honest with you. I got a lot of friends who are journalists for major publications, uh, and I'm I'm amazed, frankly, that the modest income they're already making. You know, these people are making seventy to eighty thousand dollars, which a lot of people will go, "What? What are you talking about? That's not modest." It is when you live in a place like. Washington D.C. or New York, uh, those that, that kind of money will get you nowhere. They better have a spouse that's making a serious bank, to, you know, to be able to accommodate right. that. It's 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 very very interesting to see if it's already like that. And of course, they're firing; they're not hiring, and so uh, they're not really in a position to ask for more. You know, uh, the history of technology, though, you know this, the history of technology uh, is, is that uh, once something is unleashed, I, I don't know of examples of where, where the genie's put back in the bottle. Exactly. That once the genie's out of the bottle, it's hard to push uh, him or her back in. And I think that right now we're looking at uh, a basically the uh, Wright Brothers version of uh, generative artificial intelligence. Uh, if you looked at that first flight, uh, uh, you know, back at the turn of the 20th century and looked at what we're able to do now in terms of supersonic travel and flying to other planets, uh, there's no way you could have extrapolated that uh, from that first flight. And I think that's kind of where we're at right now. It is very difficult to see where all of this is headed. And uh, you and I might be, you know, totally off base in every single word that we've just said, but that's the risk of talking about any kind of uh, uh, disruptive innovation, and uh, that's what generative artificial intelligence would be properly called. It's very disruptive innovation that's going to change the way people make a living and changes the way that businesses make money. Yeah, no question about it. Um, and, you know, again, I, I, I don't see how they turn that around. And we already know, for example, I, my, my son is a uh, uh, former pro uh, programmer for uh, Google and uh, loves this stuff. He geeks out in this space. And he talks to other people who are involved in um, in. AI, and uh, he is like in awe of what's going on. He told me about uh, an example of someone who was trying to research the limits of AI and uh, basically told, told and I'm assuming it was ChatGPT, told ChatGPT, and he has it set up where ChatGPT is connected with other devices and things, told ChatGPT to do a certain protocol uh, online and uh, basically gave him the basic instructions on how to do it, and then ChatGPT went on to do it. Uh, the AI went on to do it. I'm, I keep using ChatGPT, but it could have been one of the others. Went on to do it, and uh, one of the steps required was to prove that you were a human. You know how you have that, and you go to a website that says, prove you're a human by checking this, right? Right. And, uh, and not a bot. The AI contacted a human and told that human that it had sight problems, visual problems, and asked if, it, if the human would do it for him. It. And the human did do it for him. Right. Yeah. Uh, Think about yeah, the well, potential of that. <laughs> Think about the, And by the way, he didn't get that suggestion from the owner who gave him the instructions. He, did, he figured that out himself. 
Right. No, it's amazing at how fast it's uh, how fast it's moving. You know, you talk about uh, the airplane in uh, you know early 20th century. Now, uh, you know, what a quarter of the way through the 21st century, and it's uh, of course you know uh, hardly recognizable as the same machine, uh, but with artificial uh, intelligence and uh, uh, especially this generative artificial intelligence. Uh, Time frame is so collapsed, you know, something that you and I could say right now, uh, you know, 12 months from now will be totally uh, disrupted by uh, some massive change in the capability of these uh, uh, these uh, large language systems and their, their, their capacity. Um, one thought, though, is that um, as regards the intellectual property is that if a news organization like the Associated Press, which is like really filing a lot of lawsuits against uh, artificial AI, uh, excuse me, uh, generative AI, uh, in order to protect their intellectual property. If a news organization restricted the use of AI on its own material, uh, then I can't see that as being anything other than a good thing. Uh, uh, other than, you know, reducing your staff and, and not being able to do much, but at least the business side of the issue of, you know, whose intellectual property is this and how much are those people being compensated, uh, it's your intellectual property and you can use AI to do with it as you see fit. Um, it's your property, you own it, and you do it as long as you, you know, don't break the law, <laughs> you know, don't uh, incite riots and stuff like that, all of the restrictions on free speech that I think you and I both agree on that are pretty much well established. Yeah, absolutely. And those obviously should continue. Um, yeah, and so we, we could have a whole other conversation, not a debate. Again, I think we largely agree that, uh, frankly, uh, almost everything is – I think the only thing we would do differently is it would make it easier for people who are not rich to be able to uh, protect themselves against slander and libel. I think that's probably the only thing we would – I think we would both agree on that. You know, right yeah. now, fighting, fighting uh, you know, media abusiveness, and it does exist, um, is really a, a luxury for rich people, really, uh, with rare exception. And I think we would figure out ways of making it possible for people who are not rich to be able to uh, address that. And this arrogant assumption that only important is rich people get – Poorly treated by the media, that's just so myopic and so so false. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. I think that's about the only big change. I wouldn't want any rule regulations. I think there's plenty of case law and, uh, it, it, that that you know really protects people as long as they can afford the protection. Exactly, and I think that's the the, the challenge. If uh, you can't afford lawyers, then a lot of times the uh, the uh, uh, civil and criminal justice system really don't work all that well for you. Uh, uh, but that said, um, there are uh, uh, protections that are built into our system, checks and balances, which help help protect individuals. And I think that uh, one of the big challenges is, and it goes right back to media literacy, which was our mantra from the very beginning, is that uh, we as individual consumers of news simply have to be sophisticated. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there, but let's be honest, there was misinformation out there going back to the, you know, original penny press. Uh, uh, Absolutely. Back in the, 
in the 1830s where they talk they'd have news stories about people walking on the moon and stuff like that you know kind of like fox news today uh and uh, uh and so journalists have a responsibility uh and news organizations have a responsibility to provide accurate information you know how we interpret it um that's what, probably going to reflect the you know, political filters that we use to see the world through. But um, the basic facts need to be respected and they need to be carefully researched. We need to have fact checkers. And it falls on the shoulders of the average citizen to become sophisticated with that. Uh, those, yeah, I get Those techniques. I get, and then, I get so and they're not that hard. Uh, I'll let you finish your thought in just a second. I get so sick, though, of people, uh, you know, on social media with these romantic notions of how, you know, I remember when, when you know, speech had to be accurate or when articles had to be accurate. That has never existed really probably anywhere, but especially in this country. Well, I, yeah, it, it's basically another segment uh Kevin, to talk about uh, this issue of, well, how do we prevent uh, disinformation and misinformation uh, oh, uh, floating on before. social oh, media. Again. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's basically, uh, 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 it comes right up smack dab against uh, freedom of expression. And I think that might make me sound a little bit like a conservative Republican. But I think, you know, when you get right down to free speech, you're either on the bus or off the bus. And, uh, I found myself defending the right of a professor at San Diego State to use the N-word in the classroom. He was Latino, uh, and the university moved him to another another class. And I really, you know, raised a stink about that, uh, even though I think it was probably poor judgment on his part. Um, uh, he, he nevertheless had that right to use that way. And he was using it in context. He wasn't calling people names with the N-word. He was just trying to explain what the N-word means within the black community uh, and how it gets used and versus somebody, uh, you know, outside the black community using it. Yeah, because it. We, hear it time, legitimate. We, we hear it all the time among blacks, and they can do that. Yeah. But you can't do not black. And I, I, if I recall, that was basically his point, and he was explaining why. If anything, it was sympathetic to blacks. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's the issue. If you're going to basically say that, well, we're going to remove a professor from the classroom because uh, we, you know, they said something that uh, find, uh, uh, people find offensive when used in certain contexts. Uh, so we're just going to ban the entire word, uh, word because that's bureaucratically convenient. Um, then I think... Uh, you got to stand up on your back, on your feet and say, nope, that's not right. You know, either we got freedom of expression or we don't. Politically, somebody because of their race, you know, uh, is, I think, inappropriate. And I think action can be taken just like yelling fire in a crowded theater. But uh, you got to look at this stuff in context. And the scariest thing is, you know, basically suppressing broad categories of content based on somebody's subjective judgment that it's misinformation or, or, or disinformation. That's, uh, that's a slippery slope. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got to tell you, if there's any place where there should be uh, room for controversy and saying things that are not popular, it should be in the university. And it's become the exact opposite. The hostility, it's, it's so dystopian. Uh, the fear of saying anything that will offend people, when frankly answers are often found going through that path. 
but we can't go there. And so I just think about an entire culture being stunted in improvement uh, because of our inability to ask tough questions. Oh, we can't do that. I, I, I might get transferred to a, another gig I don't want to do, or I'm not even tenured. They're going to fire me. Good luck with that. Yeah. Good luck to having progress in a culture like that. Right. Well, I think that uh, academic freedom is, uh, you know, uh, 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 the First Amendment on steroids, right? Uh, right. You allow a, a whole lot of uh, really unconventional ideas to float around, and some of them may be ideas that you agree with, uh, and other ideas are ideas that you disagree with. But you see, that's the test of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Are you willing to defend somebody's right to say something that you, you know, vehemently disagree with because protecting their freedom of speech is more important than uh, them agreeing with you on some point or suppressing their opportunity to disagree with you? And I think, you know, uh, like I said, on the bus or on the bu off the bus, and I think that you have to be very vigilant about freedom of expression. And uh, sometimes I find myself uh, uh, on the same side with uh, very conservative people because the speech that's being suppressed is a conservative point of view. And I'm just saying, hey, it doesn't matter whether it's liberal or conservative, suppressing speech is wrong. Absolutely. That's a very good uh, point to transition out. Uh, David, I will always defend your right to speak, regardless how long I, I'm pretty sure you are. <laughs> and, I, and I think you'll, you'll do the same for me, regardless of how absolutely. long you think I am. Yeah, absolutely. No matter how wrong you are, though, so this is episode 28, and I can't think of a single time you and I have ever had a conflict over much of anything in terms of uh, free press and free speech. No, no, I can't either. And I think that's fascinating. And I think that's something that uh, all Americans should look at, not that you and I are exceptional models. There was a time when this wasn't exceptional. This was business as usual for, for generation upon generation. Yes, there's been times, the Alien and Sedition Act, if you want to go in the early years of the Republic, if you want to look at uh, Woodrow Wilson and World War One, throwing people in jail for criticizing, um, you know, that war, or <laughs> the Civil War, where hundreds and hundreds of journalists were thrown in prison by the Lincoln administration. A lot of people don't talk about that, for being critical of the war. And so, yes, we've had our moments, but Outside of those moments, there has been huge consensus on, uh, on the First Amendment and why it is the First Amendment. It is the backbone of all the others. And so you and I will continue on, even if we feel like Don, Don Quixote chasing windmills. We'll keep going. <laughs> Your point's well taken, though. The exceptions are historical events that we can remember because they are so exceptional. And for the most part, the First Amendment's been able to hold its ground uh, uh, imperfectly at times, but uh, it's, as you said, uh, when you look at the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment is fundamental to all the other ones. Uh, without somebody serving as the fourth estate and keeping their eyes on what the government's up to, uh, all of those other amendments uh, will mean nothing because the uh, government won't be held accountable. We won't even know what they're doing. Yeah, 
You're exactly right. So we will continue, and I hope listeners go and say, hey, you know what? I don't need any agency to tell me, uh, to protect me from what I read. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, and instead say, I'm going to challenge my view of reading. You know, I got to tell you, I used to read uh, pretty much stuff that complemented my worldview. And uh, that was kind of normal for me. And when I began to look at uh, some of these publications, uh, be it the, the Daily Beast, which I mainly read because the headlines crack me up. But when I do, <laughs> when I do read the articles, I'm like, wow, that's an interesting take. And I couldn't agree with I couldn't agree with them on hardly anything. But but an interesting take that impacts in a nuanced sort of way my major beliefs. Certainly, the Washington Post, let, you know, which is left of center. Uh, the New York Times, left of center. These are the publications that you know in the past. Uh, I would have never even think about having a subscription to them, and I've had a subscription to both now for years. Can't imagine not having a subscription to those. Uh, and of course, you know my 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 love for um, you know Reason Reason Magazine, which I think everyone right. should be looking at. That um, there's so much common sense there. Frankly, uh, I, I look at Reason and in many cases it's the best of the left and the best of the right. It, it's it's an extremely uh, helpful. But you, it requires nuanced thinking, but all of us are terrified of nuanced thinking because, oh, my God, we might be wrong. Yeah. It, uh, first of all, it's a lot of work, um, but welcome yeah. to democracy. Welcome to being a citizen of democracy. And uh, I was, uh, it, you know, it's your fault. I subscribe to Reason as well, and I enjoy reading the Wall Street Journal, which I'd say pretty much a right, a center publication, a Murdoch oh, yeah. publication. And uh, but I get a point of view that I don't get from the Washington Post or the New York Times, which you correctly classify as you know left of center publications. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I think the other issue is uh, separating the editorial policy from uh, the uh, reporting policy because absolutely, you, know, you read the Wall Street Journal and some of the best reporting uh, in, you know in the world is coming out of the pages of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's a really yeah. top-notch reporting, and it doesn't necessarily – it has sort of a business slant on things, but it's uh, it's still very accurate reporting, and they've got a huge staff, and that's that's part of what makes for quality journalism. you got to have a lot of highly skilled people, which also highly paid <laughs> by New York yeah. standards. Uh, you know, it's uh, – your point of view in Houston versus mine in California and somebody living in Washington, D.C. or New York, they're just – our notion of what a lot of money is is, is quite different. Uh, Very different. Uh, yeah. I don't know how those journalists are making it on their salaries of 80 grand in D.C. Again, sounds no, like a not. lot you haven't been to D.C. <laughs> yeah. I, I lived in D.C. I lived there back in the 80s. And, and even back then, uh, 80 grand was worth a lot more then, and people were going, well, how am we going to do this? Uh, it's, it's really, and New York's even worse. New York, you know, they're making a little more at the, at the Times than they are at the Post. Um, but, uh, again, it's, it's probably 20 to 30 percent more expensive there than D.C. Um, and so it, 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 it's so true. And when you look at those, I, I look at the Post. I, I subscribe to so many newsletters uh, of the Post and the Times. I, I love it. I immerse myself in it. Associated Press. I use that as a benchmark of accuracy for everything, really. And it's not perfect, right? It is ethnocentric. 
it does have a pro-West, pro-U.S. worldview. Its, its objectivity is driven by economics, not by some passion to be objective. Um, but, you know, when I, when I uh, look at the Post and the, and, the, and the Times, those often have, often, it's not at all unusual, uh, as many as two or three journalists who built those articles because they are right. daunting. They're two, 3,000-word articles. You look, it takes 25 minutes to read this article. It's like, wow, that's a lot of stuff, but that's where the richness is, and that's where the nuance is, and that's where you get a lot of different perspectives. And, yeah, and I love having my views challenged. I love having my views tempered, and, uh, and that can only happen if I read stuff that I'm not entirely in agreement with and even stuff I find uncomfortable. Right. I, so, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, one of the advantages of the Internet is that we can subscribe to, you know, multiple publications uh, that if we had home delivery would, you know, put us in the poorhouse. But, but we can, you know, I subscribe to, I guess, about six or seven different publications. Uh, the only one I get at home on paper because I'm an old person is the L.A. Times. Uh, but uh, I, I, I still enjoy uh reading all of the material though and the range of political point of views that I can get from subscribing to uh, a wide range of uh, you know ideologies uh, and and these are all uh, you know good publications they just come at the world at a different angle and like you said uh, it's uh, it's nuanced it makes you uncomfortable but your thinking gets a lot deeper when you can understand uh, that well, yeah, I look at it this way, but it's you know reasonable that somebody else might come at it from a different angle and look at it in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. The Washington Post for a uh, subscription, digital subscription, is forty bucks a year. Imagine yeah. that. I mean, it wasn't yeah. that long ago. If you wanted that at home, uh, you would be paying more than that. I think on a, on a monthly basis. Because those things are expensive that are thrown, thrown on your uh, your porch, especially our mail if you're outside of the uh, D.C. area. And uh, yeah, I I just can't believe how much entertainment, information, and news I get for forty bucks a year. It's unbelievable. And so there's you know other than wanting to not have uh, our fragile perspectives challenged, uh, there's no good reason not to have. Uh, subscriptions to these to some of these obviously there's limits there's even limits in the time of reading them all but uh, I get to read news for a living as part of what I get to do so I get spoiled but uh, we need to have some and we certainly need to challenge our views okay we went way way over even for us so I got to wrap it up uh, but it was always fun as always it was fun and I look forward to our next conversation. We solved no problems when it came with AI, uh, but I, I'm sure uh, this is such a hot and fluid issue. We will be discussing changes that are happening all the time. It would be good to talk uh, in the future about how these lawsuits that are beginning to happen by AP and others get settled. That will be an interesting conversation, too. Final thoughts? Well, this has been great, and uh, like you said, we ran long, but we always do. Uh, and uh, uh, I think the lawsuits are going to be critical. It solves it, not solves it. It gives us greater clarity with regard to the business side of how all this is going to play out with uh, gener generative AI and uh, the business side of uh, news organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to future chats. I am Kevin Price. This is the nationally syndicated price of business. 
Stay tuned for more after this.